0: So we're coming to the concluding days of our 10-day retreat. And um, can feel it. There's both a sense of relaxation or some grace that's come of being settled down and present and open. Doesn't mean it's always pleasant. It still goes up and down a lot, doesn't it? But just some more ease in being. Um, and also those little stirrings of, thoughts and imaginations of where we're going back to that start to come in. For this evening, I'd like to talk about both what we've done together and the Buddhist path um, as a beautiful system of training um, that reflects or returns us to a wisdom that we already know. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path (coughs) of the the Buddhist practice is is summarized in three sections um, that involve the training of body and speech, the training of the mind and heart, and then the training in wisdom. And we've engaged in all of them in our time together, and in some ways they are also what we will carry as we move out from this retreat back to the tasks and circumstances of our life. At first they're called trainings, Um, Because we practice them. And through the practice, we discover the truths of what brings happiness to us, to all beings. But later, these three fundamental trainings become what are called freedom. The three freedoms. So the trainings in Sanskrit or Pali are sila, samadhi, and panya. Um, and then when we really understand them, they become adi sila, adi samadhi and adipanya. This is the word my teacher Ajahn Chah used to use. And adi is a prefix um, that means higher or um, fulfilled. And so the trainings that we undertake when fulfilled become a natural expression of our heart's freedom, of our in- inherent wisdom. Let me explain this to you, and then hopefully it will get become clear. The first of these trainings is called sila, which means virtue or integrity, or sometimes it's translated as morality, but more, a, a closer translation is integrity. Si lena sukotingyanti si lena silena si lena tinyanti, silam visota ye this little chant at the end of the offering of the guidelines or trainings in integrity or virtue says that one who undertakes the training of action of wise action. Um, receives happiness as a blessing, and benefit, and liberation as a blessing. Now, it's pretty straightforward, and we all understand that an enormous part of the world's sufferings are created by greed, hatred, and delusion. Grasping, and hatred, and racism, and prejudice, and, and hoarding, and so forth and the fear that underlies that. And there's something in us that understands that those strategies um, do not create a wise world or a wise society. I'm a lifelong natural mystic. I've known the direct experience of the divine countless times. But what is it like to be a mystic in this world? In part it's sad. Mystics can go through a long period in which they have experiences of the divine in a sunrise, in music, in children's laughter, but they remain unsure. Once after I gave a talk in a church, an old woman waited till the crowd of people cleared, and I saw she was not much longer for this world. Acting circumspectly, she recited a dream in which an amazing golden sun came to her and asked if it was God at first I thought of my kind of Jungian reply well we need to get into the symbols and see what they mean to you but then I was struck by the total impact of the situation this old woman is dying and it matters very much to her if she met God even once in this life and I said yes it was God and we both broke into tears But how sad! She had the marks of a deeply spiritual person whose life was embedded in the Spirit, and yet she asked desperately if she has once encountered the Divine. To me, she represents most of us. She is already well on her way, but has not learned to recognize the signs. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, called this innate wisdom in us, the one who knows. And from this place of our knowing, we understand what is wise action. Sila traditionally, you could also call it the acts of compassion, um, is taught as guidelines. Sometimes the training precepts to not kill, to not steal, to not harm oneself or others through false speech or the misuse of drugs or intoxicants or the misuse of sexuality. And they're not moral precepts to follow. They're guidelines for treating ourselves and other beings with compassion. Because without them, there's shame and regret and remorse and struggle and guilt. um, And we all know it. I mean, you know how you feel after you've cheated even if it's on your taxes and you don't think that the government really deserves it. Still, there's something kind of uncomfortable about it, isn't there? Or gossiping in ways that undermine or kind of don't help other beings. Or, you know, in the midst of some difficult circumstance in your family or your work or something, and there's the possibility to get even, or get back, or do something a little bit unskillful. Um, and then what it feels like afterward, to not kill or steal. It's not for the sake of other beings, although they appreciate it m- very much. It's like the two deer on the hillside, you know, in hunting season, in this cartoon I saw in The New Yorker. and. Their deer are talking to each other, the hunters are down below with their guns, and one deer says to the other, "Why don't they thin their own goddamn herds?" And, you know, and even the tiny ones, this is a poem from my wife's master calligrapher that she studied calligraphy with. beautiful hand. And he wrote, "A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get) So there's a sweetness to this quality of integrity and virtue. But also there's something deeper. I remember this one person coming to Ajahn Chah who used to import um, illegally different tropical birds and animals and stuff and talking to Ajahn Chah about his work and so forth. And Ajahn Chah just looked at him and said, Don't do it. It's illegal. It's bad. Don't do it. I said, but I make a lot of money doing this. It's my livelihood. He said, find another livelihood. And some years later, several years later, I met this man. He came back to the monastery, and he'd started some other business, and actually was prospering in his other business. Um, And he slept well. He didn't worry. It's called the sleep of the just. Do you understand? So the first training in compassion is to not harm in word and deed. And it makes us happy. We are happy, and the beings that we live with are happy. Now this training, sila, or integrity, that we can practice and learn from, turns into adi sila, or the innate or higher awakening of um, integrity. And I'll read you a story. I have some stories for you tonight that maybe gives a bit of the flavor of this from the Christian Desert Fathers. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment worth 18 gold pieces that had both the Old and New Testament in it. Once, a certain young brother came to visit him and seeing the book made off with it. So that day, when the abbot went to read his book, found it was gone, he realized the brother had taken it. But he didn't send after to inquire about it for fear that the brother would create further harm for himself by adding perjury and lying to his theft. Well, the brother went down to the nearby city to sell the book and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. The buyer said, give this book to me that I may find out whether it's worth that much. And with that, he took the book to the holy Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this Bible. Tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold pence, is it worth that much? The abbot said, yes, it is a fine book worth quite that much. So the buyer went back to the young brother and said, here's your money. I showed the book to abbot Anastasius. He said, it's a fine book worth at least 16 gold pence. The brother said, was that all he said? Didn't he make any other remarks? No, said the buyer, not a word. Well, said the brother, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell this book after all. And he hastened back to the abbot and begged him with tears to take the Bible back. But the abbot would not accept it, saying, Here, go in peace, my brother, I make you a present of it. And then the brother stopped and said, Oh, Anastasius, if you do not take it back, I shall never have peace in my life. And after that, the brother dwelt with abbot Anastasius for the rest of his life. That's Adi Sila. And you can feel the joy in it, the joy of not only letting go in that way, but also of not wanting another person to be harmed by their unskillful action. It's that place of conscience and beyond conscience, that joy or freedom that our heart or our spirit, our soul, takes when our actions care for ourselves And for all the beings in front of us and around us, when the heart is not separate from the well-being of all. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours as well. This is the natural integrity and the beauty and the joy when the heart cares for ourselves and for all of life as it presents itself. And we know it, it's... In us, it's again what Ajahn call, Chah called the one who knows. That place of wisdom resonates with that story and the beauty of it. It's our Buddha nature. So the first training is the training in action, indeed, to not cause harm, to be compassionate, and then it becomes our natural way. The second training is the training in samadhi. And I talked about that a couple of nights ago, in the Factors of Enlightenment. It refers to the calm and the one-pointedness or concentration or collectedness. In the simplest way, it's the training of purifying the mind, quieting the mind, and opening the heart so we can really be present and open to a moment of life. Think about it, those moments when you listen to a piece of music that you really love or when you're out watching the sunset and that crescent moon in the sky or you're in your garden working or you're with a child that you love or you're making love or whatever, something that you really care about and what it's like to be fully present and fully engaged in that moment of this mysterious life the kind of happiness that comes from being whole and complete where we are. And we've been training that second happiness, just as we've trained the happiness of non-harming. This second training is the happiness of a calm and collected mind and heart. As opposed to those times that we all know when we're scattered, and confused, and our attention is going in ten different places. And you remember that line from James Joyce where he wrote, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. You know, when we're not even, you know, even in the ballpark of our own experience. But when we train ourselves to be where we are, If the eye be single, said Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, then the whole being is filled with light. When we train ourselves to be alive in this moment, we get the moment of the rose, as T.S. Eliot says, and the moment of the yew tree, and the moment of the smells in the morning when there's a little dew on this dry California grass, and a certain shade of blue just before the sky loses its color at twilight and the moment of little cricket and frog sounds the moment of being alive so this quality of training of samadhi of oneness comes when we actually let go into the reality of the present When things become unified and we're here with just this much. Nothing more, nothing less. The suchness of this moment. Another story for you. This is from Leo Tolstoy. Um, And I had a wonderful experience, actually. Mo oh, about 20 years ago, I flew up to Nelson in British Columbia in the Kootenays to teach a retreat in this old farm on a lake. Um, and I was taken during the retreat by the manager to these hot springs nearby, old hot springs in the mountains in the Kootenays. And the people running the hot springs were the Duke of Ors, who it turned out they were these old Russian folks. Some they had some of their children with them too, who were part of Tolstoy's intentional community Count Leo Tolstoy, before the Bolshevik Revolution, um, was, he was actually an inspiration for Gandhi, um, gave up his title and started on his estates, a communal way of living that didn't harm any other living beings. And then when the Communists took over in Russia, they fled to Canada, and there was this old Tolstoy community, it was wonderful old people. Anyway, here's his story. One day it occurred to a certain Emperor that if only he knew the answer to three questions, he would never stray in any matter. What is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what's the most important thing to do at all times? And not knowing the answer, he sent a decree out, as emperors do, and all the wise men and the various people came and they gave him answers, you know. You know how it is when you get answers from a committee some said make a schedule that's the best time to do things spare me a schedule right? others said um, that you can't plan in advance and you should put everything aside and just remain still and attentive and you'd know what the right thing to do was You know. and somebody else said that you needed a council of wise people to tell you what the right thing to do was and that's the way all these questions were answered, all these different possibilities you know um, where you should put your trust in in um, the most important people to work with, the military said, why us, of course, you know, and the senators said, why us, of course, and so forth. He wasn't pleased. So he heard there was a wise man in the mountains, but this wise man never came down and didn't have a lot of truck with politicians or emperors. So the emperor disguised himself as a peasant and went with one bodyguard, left the bodyguard and went up. There was the old man working away in his garden in the middle of the day, the top of this mountain. And the emperor asked the questions. The old man just smiled at him, continued to work, sweat. No answer. The emperor thought, well, this old man could die before I get an answer. Maybe I better help him. So he said, hey, old man, let me help you. And he took the hoe and shovel and worked for a while. And they traded off through the afternoon until just about nighttime. And the emperor was saying, well, one more time, can't you give me an answer? I've helped you all day. All of a sudden, he heard a sound. A man running through the bushes turned around, and there was a man bleeding from a great wound. The emperor took the man as he was falling, and the old man helped him, and they carried him into the hut, took off his own robes and put them in the stream and cared for the wound and bound him up. The man had fainted. And then they were all exhausted. Better just go to sleep. Woke up in the morning as the emperor, the sun is just coming up, the old man lying there, they're all on the floor of the hut, and here's this guy all bandaged. He opens his eyes and shouted, It's you! What has happened? And the emperor said, Well, you were cut and I tried to help you. And he said, You saved my life? And he said, Yes. He said, Oh, please, please, please forgive me. The emperor said, Forgive you for what? He said, Well, I had come on this mountain to kill you. You see, you had taken the land of my family in that, you know, a generation ago, and I was determined to kill you, and I was on my way, but my bodyguard, your bodyguard rather, came at me with a sword and almost killed me, And then you saved my life, I'm so sorry. Please, if I can do anything for you, my family will be in your service." And of course, the emperor was really happy to be reconciled with a man that had tried to kill him. So then it was time to go back down the hill. He ordered his attendant to come up and escort the man back home, help to see to his healing. And he turned to the hermit and he said, I've been here a very long day helping you and a long night and all this stuff has happened, you've never answered my question. I need my three questions. But your questions have been answered, said the hermit. They have? How is that? Well, yesterday, if you'd not taken pity on my age and given me a hand in the garden, you would have been attacked by that man on your way home. Then you would have really regretted not helping me. (laughs) Therefore, the most important time was the time you were digging in the beds, the most important person was myself, and the most important pursuit was to bring assistance and help. Then, when the wounded man came here, The most important time was the time you spent dressing his wound, for if you hadn't cared for him, he might have died and you would have lost the chance to be reconciled with him. And likewise, he was the most important person, and the most important pursuit was to be of service. Remember that there's only one important time, and that is now. The present moment is the only time over which we have any power. Isn't that interesting? The most important person is always the person that you're with, who's right before you, for who knows if you'll ever see that person again. And the most important pursuit is to bring to that person and yourself the blessings of your life. What else could your life be for? So that's Tolstoy's story. meditation, samadhi, if you will, that training of the quieting and collecting of the mind, is to bring us to a wholeness where we can live in the reality of the present. It's what Rodney was pointing to last night. In fact, there isn't even a present. I mean, past, as we know, is a thought or memory, and future is a fantasy, an idea. But even present isn't exactly right. There's just now, this eternal now. If you're you're looking for eternity, it's not going to come when you die. You know, it's here. This is it. There is the eternal present, and that is what we swim in and rest in, in which all things arise in. And this then leads us to Adi Samadhi, or the natural Samadhi of simply resting, of being present. A kind of release from trying to be anything special or be somewhere else. The wholeness, the undistractedness of being just where we are. A little poem for you called, Washing the Buddha's Bowl. It was my turn to do the dishes, 50 people in the house, some using three separate plates where they only needed one. Dishes piled high with leftover grease, bones, sticky grains of rice, peas embedded in potatoes, forks crusted with refried beans hardening in the summer heat. The line seemed endless. They laughed as they handed more work. Some carried dishes for two, and I scraped the plates with a vengeance vowing never to eat again. Then I noticed him toward the end of the line, dressed in robes of a simple monk. Just past the soap bubbles floating on the dish rack, glasses streaked with resentment underneath them. He carried only one bowl and spoon, empty, nothing extra. And as the Buddha approached, he apologized profusely for adding to my burden, at which point washing dishes became a joy so simple. We get caught up in how it should be and the dishes shouldn't be dirty and there's too many dishes. And then all of a sudden something in our heart remembers just to be where we are. There's the Buddha, which is of course here. Oh, just washing the dishes. It's like a woman who came to see me at one point. We were talking about practice and so forth. She was the mother of a couple of young kids and then she'd had really bad back problems and she was trying to get them to help clean up but they were little they were like four and six and you know how they four and four-year-olds clean up right (laughs) and she was struggling with them and trying to get them to do you know off to preschool or kindergarten and all these things and she said it was so painful in her body and so hard and they just wanted their mama you know it was so difficult And finally she said, I gave up. I just sat down on the floor with them. I said, to hell with house cleaning. And I played with them all morning. I couldn't even get up off the floor because my back was so bad. And I said, bring some games, kids. Bring some crayons. And she said, and they were so happy. And you know what? I was so happy as well. So the quality of samadhi that we train and try to become more present and more whole and so forth, it has a blessing in the training. But it really leads us back to this much simpler truth, which is that we can and do live in the reality of the present, in the reality of now. And you can feel that even as these words tumble out and they fill the air and they dissolve like a cloud. And even as you sit here and the breath moves like a breeze through the now, where else could you go? There isn't anywhere. (coughs) The word for the Buddha, the Tathagata, means, in one translation, the one who has gone beyond, or the one It also means the one who has come beyond. And you can't tell whether it means the Buddha went away or whether the Buddha came here. And The Buddha actually liked plays on words. I think it's probably conscious that it was done this way. The one thus come and the one thus gone. When you're gone, there's just here. And in that sense you're also the one who has come. So the third of the freedoms the third of the trainings, just as there's training in integrity and that natural happiness that comes from acting with integrity and training in the wholeness of being present where we are, there's the training in the freedom of wisdom, panya or prajna, it's sometimes called. And wisdom simply sees things as they are. You get here in the reality of the present and then you take a look. You kind of turn on Rodney's flashlight. Where is he? Where are you, Rodney? Oh, there he is. I got my flashlight on you in the back, yes. And you take a look. And things are the way they are. Someone gave me these poems. Um, They said, suppose that your computer could talk to you in... Zen haiku instead of those cryptic, difficult messages that come from their, its program, especially on having difficulties. So this is the computer speaking to you in haiku. Yesterday it worked. Today it is not working. Life is like that. So is your computer.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: or a crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone (laughs) or three things are certain death taxes and lost data (laughs) guess which has occurred once our lives are in harmony with integrity so we're not harming others because it's very hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing you know it just doesn't (laughs) work very well so once we're not harming so we can be here and then we get to the training and the freedom of being present then we begin to see how things are and one of the things that's true is that you noticed it in these 10 days i hope is that nothing lasts? That everything is impermanent. Joy and sorrow, and pleasure and pain, and birth and death, and morning and evening, um, and all the sensations of the body and the emotions and and the thoughts that you have. And if you look to them for lasting satisfaction, guess what? You won't find it. You know why? Cause it doesn't last. So the satisfaction can't be in the things. We are not in control of this process, have you noticed? (laughs) You're not in control of your mind very much. You're certainly not in control of your emotions. Your body responds minimally, you know, to your wishes. And then try to be in control of your family members, right? Or your friends or your colleagues, not even a prayer, right? (laughs) Lucky enough if you're in control of your car, right? So wisdom sees that this is the way things are, and it can laugh. It learns how to let go, to be flexible, to be free, because life is changing. In the present, in this now, there's this changing play of circumstances. It's like the cartoon, I don't know if I spoke of this in here, of the um, nomads. Did I tell you about that? No? And there's the father on one camel going across the desert, and then the mother following him on the next camel in the train going across the desert, and then three camels each with kids on them, you know, and all the belongings and so forth. And the father's leaning back talking to one of the kids, and he said, stop asking if when we're going to get there. We're nomads for crying out loud. This is wisdom. (laughs) Did you come here to get something? I hope not. Because you don't get anything at retreats. This is the dump. This is the place (laughs) where you leave stuff so you can be where you are. It's true. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, wonderful abbot of the monastery in England. He says, The practice of letting go which is the practice of wisdom, you know, that sees that things are changing and doesn't cling to them to make suffering. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and grasping and wanting to become and get this, do that, attain this. You know those minds? You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidharma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana (laughs) and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go. (laughs) I did nothing but this for years in my practice. Every time I tried to understand and figure it all out and become something special, I just say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade away. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the hinayana, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. (laughs) Wisdom sees that our happiness does not come in changing conditions. Pleasure comes, fine, you can enjoy it. Pleasure goes, let it go. Pain comes, fine, you can enjoy it. Pain goes, let it go. It is what it is. And our happiness in the end is not truly generated by the things outside ourselves. It is by the state of our heart the wisdom of our being. With that you can be happy. Without it, nothing outside. No amount of different things and experiences will satisfy us, will make us happy. Wisdom also sees that no matter how good you are, you know, and how hard you try, that you will suffer in certain ways. Lama Yeshe, this most beautiful enlightened teacher, you know, started 50 or 100 wonderful temples around the world, filled with laughter. He was put in the hospital for um, a great, for kind of a heart attack. He had an enlarged heart and a lot of heart problems and he almost died. They stuck him in intensive care and he wrote, Never have I known the sufferings of this stay. Due to the powerful medications and the oxygen and the tubes just to breathe, my mind was overcome with pain and confusion. At its worst, after 41 days since I became ill, the condition of my body was like, was as if I became the lord of a cemetery. My mind was like that of an anti-god, and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. It was extremely difficult to maintain awareness without being confused so near death. And as my ability to recite prayers degenerated, after many days I considered what to do and gradually I regained, through mindfulness and attention, a bit of stability. But don't forget, he's writing to his friend, his dearest friend, how important it is to train before that time. And this is a really great teacher. Um, So, you know, you have ideas of how life is supposed to be. It's not going to be the way we plan it. It's the way that it is. But in the way that it is, there is a possibility of freedom. Your own true nature shining in freedom. And this is wisdom. Wisdom sees that things are impermanent, knows the reality of letting go, knows that we will have pleasure and pain and birth and death woven together. On a deeper level, wisdom also involves a shift of identity. Who are we? Who was born into this body that you take to be yourself, with a little bit of fur, you know, in certain parts, and you know that moves around in these funny ways with arms and legs and stuff. But the, be- the weirdest thing to have a body. And these eyes, I mean, aren't they strange, these globes, you know? <laughs> They're really bizarre that we look out of. Or are you the skeleton, you know, the bones? There's the skeleton meditation. Maybe you're your feelings, right? All those different feelings, do you think? But if you're one feeling, and then you get the opposite one 15 minutes later, you love her, no, you hate her, right? Or him, whatever it is. And clearly, as the Buddha said, if you had to identify with something, better you should think you're your body than you are your mind. (laughs) Because if you think you're your mind, you're really in trouble. All those contradictory thoughts. Well, maybe you're the witness to it all. I'm the watcher, I'm the one here to whom it happened. But as you start to look more deeply into that, you see, sometimes there's watching and sometimes there isn't. And you begin to notice that there isn't someone who is witnessing. Really, look. Take a look inside. Who is it that's listening to these words? Is that you? Is there a person? Or maybe there's just the knowing, that pure consciousness that we all share. So as our wisdom grows, there is a shift of identity and what we take to be ourself as me and mine and separate, our gender, our body, our race, our unworthiness, our fear, our anger, our judgment, all those things. Remember what Mark Twain said? My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes most of which never happened, right? (laughs) We have all these ideas about things. Is that who we are? In a moment, as I spoke of in the last talk, we can be completely caught up in something and then say, boy, really caught up in that one, wasn't I? Really lost. I believed that one. I got really involved in that drama. But who do you think you really are? Who was born into this body? Somebody sent me on my birthday this wonderful birthday card. I don't know if I talked about it in this retreat yet. Did I talk about the Dalai Lama's birthday? No? And here's the Dalai Lama with his trademark sunglasses and big smile and all these monks around him. And he has this big box that was given to him as a present. He's taken the ribbon off and he's looking inside his birthday present. And he says, wow! Nothing. Just what I always wanted. (laughs) It's actually all like that. You have a feeling and it feels very real and then what happens to it? It's gone. Disappeared. Back with, you know, George Washington and the cherry tree. Back with the builders of the pyramids or Napoleon or something. Back into the void out of which it came. You have a thought, this great thought, and then it disappears. Where did all those thoughts go? Like where does the fire go when it goes out? It's just gone. They arise due to certain conditions the way a fire arises due to certain conditions. And then when the conditions are gone, that's gone. Like a dream, a rainbow, an echo, a phantom. Experience arises out of nothing and disappears into it. And the freedom comes when we rest in this reality. I was with a woman who lived nearby here, a neighbor, just a week and a half, two weeks ago, as she was dying. She had a beautiful 28-year-old daughter, a very wise being. And gracious friends who cared for her. She was dying of cancer. And she struggled initially with not wanting to die and let go of all the things of her life. Um, but then it became um, like a temple, as a good death can be. And I would go there not to assist her, although I did some chanting and so forth. I'd actually go there for darshan to sit like with a guru to sit and she would just look at everyone and say I'm not here for much longer but it's fine this is really the way it is you know I love you all there was so much love from her of each moment that she still had was so precious Um, and everybody could feel it you know and she said at first I was surprised that I was gonna die isn't that amazing that we should be surprised But we get surprised. I was surprised. But now I realize a big surprise that it's just how it happens. Adipanya or prajna, the highest wisdom is not this training of letting go and the training of seeing impermanence and the training of noticing that we're not the things that we thought we were. But it is that natural wisdom of resting in your Buddha nature, of letting go without clinging, of the heart being free, just as things are. And at first it's confusing to people, because they think, well, but I'm judging, or I have this stupid thought, you know, or my knee hurts, or I didn't get what I wanted for dinner and I was pouting about that. But all those things are included in your Buddha nature, And you can say, oh, pouting, wasn't he? You know, or his knee hurts, doesn't it? Or there's that thought. And somehow, bigger and truer and freer than all the experiences that you don't have to fix or change or judge or make any different. I mean, because we're all eccentric. You know, it's true. It's not like you're going to make yourself less eccentric as you get older. (laughs) It's just not going to happen, right? But outside all of this stuff, it's just this space that's absolutely free, and it's here, free in this moment. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to, once in a while, give us questions that were like koans. And one of his questions that he said is, um, there is a place which is neither going forward nor going backward, nor standing still. If you can find that place, you will be free. So what is that place that is neither going forward nor going backward nor standing still? We'll have a quiz later, see what your answer is. When you look into the mind, who are you really, wanderer? all this wandering. What is your true nature? Chogyam Trumpa puts it this way. He says, if we pay attention, we experience regularly flashes of vision, understanding, which makes us aware that there is something totally beyond our ordinary small sense of self, our self-preoccupied assumptions. These flashes are absurdly good news. From this place of wisdom which is your birthright, which is your true nature, this spacious heart all appears as a dance, as the leela is the word in the Hindu tradition. And from this place there arises tremendous compassion for all who forget and get lost or afraid or caught up, you forget. You don't realize this dance. You know this, how much suffering. Your loved ones, your friends, the politicians, the people who try to run the world in different ways and forget who they really are and what this is about. How much suffering. And so this innate compassion arises for those who don't remember the way things are. One more story. It seems, after the Buddha's enlightenment, and it's very interesting in the text that this is true, that Mara, who the Buddha defeated, if you will, under the Bodhi tree, you know, or bested in some way, or at least found a way to not be caught by Mara, Mara keeps coming back, and there are dozens of times in the stories after where the Mara comes to visit the Buddha. So in this particular story, um, the Buddha was resting in his cave, attended by his cousin, Ananda, and all of a sudden, Mara came up and said, I'd like to see the Buddha. And Ananda said, why have you come here? You know, he didn't like Mara at all. Weren't you defeated by the Buddha under the Bodhi tree? You know, the Buddha doesn't want to see you. Go away, you know. Um, You are his enemy. And Mara looked back and said, Oh, did your teacher tell you he had enemies? And Ananda realized he had misspoken. What could he do? (laughs) No, no, I guess not. He was embarrassed. So Ananda was defeated and he had to go in and announce to the Buddha that Mara was there. He was hoping the Buddha would say, Go tell him I'm not here. Tell him I'm away, uh, you know, at a meeting or something like that. (laughs) Don't bother me. But instead, the Buddha was very excited when he heard that Mara, this old friend, had come to visit him. Is Is he really here? The Buddha said, and he went out in person and greeted him and held his hand. Poor Ananda was rather distressed. Oh, Mara, how are you? How have you been? Is everything all right? You know, Mara didn't say anything, but the Buddha motioned him in and asked Ananda to make you know some tea or sandwiches or something like that. Which he did, and they sat down. And then the Buddha said to Mara, you know, how is it going? How are things with you? And Mara shook his head sadly and said, things are not going well at all. I am tired of being a Mara. I want to be something else. (laughs) Ananda got upset. He thought maybe they'd switch places or something. Mara said, you know, being Mara is not easy. If you talk, you have to talk in riddles. If you do anything, you have to be tricky and look evil and get people to do things that they don't want. You know, I just can't bear all this stuff anymore. And the Buddha looked at him very sympathetically and said, yeah, I understand it's very difficult to be Mara, but do you think it's that easy being a Buddha? You should see what they do to my teachings. You know, you should see what they say the teachings of the Buddha are and the kind of temples and the things they do in my name. I'm sure if you understood what it's like to have a lot of disciples as the Buddha, you wouldn't want that either. Here, take some tea, you know. And they looked at each other with great sympathy and then they bowed and they went their own way. That's the story of Buddha and Mara. When we discover freedom, and we do here on the retreat and in our lives, in many, many moments we touch that. When we remember that freedom, both to let go, to rest in that which is timeless, unconditioned, unborn. To be where we are and receive even Mara, offer a tea to bow to what arises, Um, we become truly happy. You know those phrases in Metta, may I be peaceful, may I be safe from harm, may I be happy. We become happy, truly happy, in the midst of this changing world. And out of us, quite naturally, comes Adi Sila, the joy of our integrity, of speaking and acting and ways that don't harm ourselves or other beings. And Adi Samadhi, there comes a natural wholeness because we're not struggling and trying to be someone else or be somewhere else. We're there, here with ourselves, the words, our bodies, this moment, just present and open. And Adi Panya, wisdom, the natural wisdom that is found when we're not going forward and not going backward and not standing still. Let's sit for a moment. want to read you one poem before we go out into the lovely night air. It's one, those of you who listen to my talks on tapes and things will have heard before because I've read it pretty often. But I like reading it and if you haven't heard it, it's great fun. Um, and it has underneath it that same spirit of freedom. It's called reverse living. Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time, all your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death, some reward. I think the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. (laughs) You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. (laughs) You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. (laughs) You become a little kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. So take your gleams out for an evening walk. <laughs> and this last day, um, tomorrow morning we'll give you the schedule for Friday and Saturday so you get it all. But this last day as we practice this evening and tomorrow and so forth, really treasure the silence and the stillness and the place of openness that you come to and greet whatever comes, you know, as... Uh, Honored guest whether it's um the Buddha or Mara invite them to tea thanks